All right. So, welcome back. What's good, Eric? Uh, you know, it's all right. Weather in Portland. It's that time of year in Portland where the weather is sunny, but it's not actually warm. Okay. That is the exact opposite of here in Atlanta because uh, the weather is, like, on that peak of being caught between spring and summer. So by the time uh, April comes around, it's going to be summer. And then when June comes around, it's going to be super summer from June all the way up until uh, about September, October. Mm. But um, I wanted you to actually, I wanted to ask you a question, though. Do you remember Coney 20, uh, 2012? Are you talking about the Invisible Children scandal? <laughs> yes, <laughs> about exactly. the Oh, vaguely. Vaguely, isn't it like the guy who founded the organization was like tripping on LSD? He was running around the streets of San Diego or something. It was, was like, it was, yeah, it was like he was running around the streets of LA uh, after releasing the uh, that that film that went viral. I think it was, I want to say one of the first films to go viral, but essentially like the idea of like, whoa, everyone had this intention. 2012, we got to get Joseph Coney out of there. Joseph Coney. Yeah, and uh, what was it? It was a couple months after that he got he was running around San Diego, uh, took off his underwear, running naked, tripping. I think he was, master- I think he was masturbating too. <laughs> yes, he was. He, he was doing that, and they had to throw him in a hospital. Brief psychosis. Here we go. Here we go. Let's look at this up. Jason Russell, <laughs> uh, American film theater director, activist who co-founded Invisible Children Inc. That's how I knew, because in college, I knew someone who was super active in Invisible Children. And they just threw a bunch of stuff. Everyone was wearing, like, the hats and shirts made money to go towards Invisible Children, which I think it was later came out that the money didn't go towards them at all. (laughs) It didn't didn't go to to them, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he made a documentary about Coney, and everyone's like, oh, man, you know, we're all woke now. We're gonna, we're gonna you know, to put a stop to this guy. And then, yeah, he had a public breakdown. He evangelized cars, made sexual gestures. Yeah, this 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 Wikipedia article really, really downplayed uh, what, he, what he did. What he really did. Maybe someone went in there and edited it. But that idea of, like, because apparently there was the Coney 2012, and then there was a part two to it. And, I mean, of course, anything that has to do with documentary, especially with something that has been going on, for so long in the Congo, all right, because this was happening from like the 1980s, I want to say, all right. The uh, just the idea of you know spreading this spotlight, like oh my God, look what's happening in Uganda. It's been happening for a while, but we're gonna make it seem like this thing is just recent, and we need to get Joseph Coney out of there. Oh my God, look at these poor children. Like of course, like you know the poor children who are traumatized and have to be reintegrated into society for fighting, you know, humanitarian fighting against wars against um, humanity. You know, gotta get that humanity effort. But just the idea of that lens of this white guy who was trying to like capture the same magic of uh, Dan Enola, I believe his name was, the guy who went to Somalia to to film the famine going on there and then ended up getting stoned and killed. I don't know if you heard about that. Oh, I did not. Yeah, this was back in, like, 1993. So, like, he was trying to do the same thing. But I feel like, you know, compared to this guy, this guy over here, his intentions, maybe pure in the beginning, they they started to get uh, distorted because the hype started to go to his head. 
because I, I feel like when you're a filmmaker within this line of work, right, like you have like minor success, but then you have something that blows up big. It's like, yo, I'm God on some like, you know, Beatles type joint, right? Uh, so, yeah. So it says right here, public breakdown. I guess the trip, I guess the acid trip, maybe, maybe that wasn't, maybe that wasn't accurate. Who knows? Um, I just remember thinking, I just remember laughing when I heard about that. Because <laughs> yeah. just like, I just remember this, that the first time I knew in college, it was so active about visible children. It was just like, overnight that organization just lost all respectability well that and the whole the whole the fact that the funds didn't go towards anybody and like the crazy part about it though was like because of this video now that the lra's right the lord's resistance army abduction rate like sharply increased like they started kidnapping even more kids (laughs) that's terrible It, it is it is terrible but just i mean like just the idea of like this happening because i in my mind anyways at least i think like 2006 was like the beginning of like the internet as we know it so like six years later to become like getting on youtube now we have coney 2012 and like this big huge mega phenomenon like coney 2012 is essentially the baby shark of that time when you really think about it speaking of uh cody and my people with good attentions having psychotic breakdowns <laughs> Do we have a comic for you today, listeners? Yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we're getting, you know, we were talking about, why are we talking about Cody 2012? Like, that is so 2010s, right? Like, you know, people <laughs> thought, well, the world wasn't really that better because, you know, we were still in the midst of a global recession the first time. It's probably why I don't I, I don't really remember a lot because 2012 was just not a good, those, those early years were pretty fuzzy for me being unemployed. <laughs> Oh really? Oh, I was uh, I'm only for the first time, but not the last time, unfortunately. I was uh, uh, my sophomore year of college. Yeah, sophomore year of college. Yeah, uh, but a comic we have for today in our continuing sub, our continuing sub series of comics that are out of print and therefore no one can get them. Or <laughs> 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 they're they're real good, real good to boost our our reach with comics nobody's ever heard of and can't get. Yeah. We have the vertical series Unknown Soldier. By Joshua Dicehart and Albert, Alberto Poncelli, guest significant guest artist uh, Pat Pat Masani and Rick Veach, veteran Rick Veach for one issue. Uh, yes. Guns of Africa, I think that's what it's called. Yes. Yeah. Oh, which is my, which is my favorite issue in the entire series. Right. Um, and then the uh, and we have cover art from Dave Johnson. Fantastic yeah. cover Steve art. Steve J. Johnson, the covers, I think, what, what really sell the book. Yes. And guess who the editor on this book was? It was uh, Pornsec. Can't pronounce his last name, but the guy who did Infidel. Yeah, the guy who wrote Infidel. Yeah. Right. He was the editor on this. Yep. So, you know, uh, this is this is a good series. Well, you know, we had a very lighthearted segue, but. To make to in order to counterbalance that, this is not what you call lighthearted book at all. Oh, not 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 at all, not at all. all. Cause, yep. Cause like the opening pages start off with uh, a child soldier killing uh, an army uh, army trooper while threatening a doctor with an AK to his head. So yep. and it gets, and it gets darker. It only gets darker. Only gets darker. Only yep. gets darker. Well, real good thing to read in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> And a pandemic and global recession. But yeah, let's um so well, let's uh try we're gonna be a little more structured with this discussion because there's a lot to unpack with this story. 
Um, so let's start first with the the facts of the book, which I think I'm going to start doing this to get our conversation a little more structured. Oh, unless, right. unless listeners, you don't want that, unless you want us to just riff, go on tangents and zany off the wall discussions. Let us let us know at theonimuspodcast@gmail.com. Which we have, which I have to remember to start plugging in our email. No, now. it's the Omnibus Comics Podcast at gmail.com. You gotta right. say comics because there are other omnibuses out there, but our omnibus is much thicker. All right, I don't. <laughs> All right, yeah, there we go. That's a perfect argument. Um, thicker, thicker is better, as they always say, according to some uh. people. Um, all right, so this is a vertical series published, first published in 2008. I think it was 25 issues, let me say. Yeah, yeah 25 yep. issues. It was published in actually 2007. 2007, all the way through 2010, I believe. 2011. 2011. 2011. Uh, it was nominated for Eisner Award 2009, Best New Series. Mm-hmm. Got a ton of praise when it first came out. Uh, sadly, canceled uh, after 25 issues due to low, due to low sales. Yeah. Uh, but at least I think the creative team at least knew enough ahead of time so they were able to give it a inclusive ending. Right. Um. This is a vertical remake. Uh, again, Vertical is a former DC imprint. Uh, started in the 80s. This is the imprint that launched the careers of Neil Gaiman, Garth Ennis. Alan, uh, Peter, Moore. Alan Moore, Peter Milligan, um, a lot of know, doing, people. Yeah, yeah, doing a lot of like darker, auteur-driven literary takes, and then sort of around the mid, the, the mid to late 2000s, they had some kind of internal change where a lot more DC characters were were moved to Vertigo, but uh, these are the DC characters that creators could do kind of like their own version, their own darker spin on it. So yeah, like the Jonah Hex. You had uh, Hellblazer. Hellblazer was like a long-running example under this perfect example. And Unknown Soldier is in the same vein. Uh, Unknown Soldier was originally a DC character, a war comics character, created by Robert Kanicker and Joe Kubert. Famous Joe Kubert. uh, The Kubert School fame, (laughs) that Joe Kubert. Uh, Created in Our Our Army at War, 1966. So it's like a World War II anthology. And he was more... And what's kind of famous about the Unknown Soldier, the character, is that he is a a, a soldier that has a bandaged face. So you have no idea, you know, what he looks like. You know, he has no identity whatsoever. He's supposedly based off, you know, the Unknown Soldiers, the two of the Unknown Soldiers in different cultures, different countries. That represent like all the soldiers that have died in conflict throughout history. Yeah. Um, he was originally kind of like he's sort of like their Captain America. He was just like, you know, the war hero going out fighting the Nazis and I think probably Japanese uh in those original Yes. Uh, I mean, war. wow, I, it's funny you say that because uh like if unknown soldier is like their Captain America, is Sergeant Rock like Nick Fury? Oh um, I guess so. I think I think. Yeah, he, so he, this is the guy who fought alongside Sergeant Rock. So for you, for you DC aficionados there. Yeah. Um, I will say that me and Phil, well, I'll speak for me. I'm, I'm pretty sure Phil's on me. I have not read any of the older, I have not read any of the other Unknown Soldier comics. Uh, I've read hints of the, 
Garth Ennis, uh, not Garth Ennis, uh, yeah, Garth Ennis, uh, run like just a little bit. I didn't, I didn't fully read it. Well, this is, but, this is not like one of their most super popular characters. Um, but you know, he's been kind of like a cult favorite character. There's been a few limited series and mini series he's had over the years by different creators. Um, I think probably the one, this is the, the one we have, it's probably the most well known, ironically yes. enough. But yeah. there was like a darker take by Vertigo in '97 by Garth Ennis, who kind of reinvented the character as a as a CIA agent, kind of commentary on that stuff. And right. I think this is probably the direction that this unknown sir, this version of unknown soldier, kind of owes a lot of debt to thematically. I think in terms of thematically, I think it was following that same narrative because, like, of course, within Garth Ennis's run, he was trying to find somebody to replace him. And then coming over to Joshua Dicehart's run, like, the Unknown Soldier did find that person to replace him as the new Unknown Soldier. Uh, I will say, I actually did remember, there's one there's one mention of the Unknown Soldier in DC, regular DC Comics I've read. It's probably the goofiest reference to is Blackest Night. <laughs> when all the when all you know when all the the the, the black lanterns are rising up right of all yeah. the and and one of them was made, there's a shot of the panel it's the two of the unknown soldier but it's empty <laughs> implying that he rose up as a black lantern <laughs> we never see him right we never, it'd be so silly to see him fight along fight you know wonder woman and green lantern and all those people yeah you know but, uh the Unknown Soldier made an appearance in the TV as well. And what? And uh, Stargirl. It was a poster at the movie theater. <laughs> oh, right, right. I remember I read that. I did not. I've actually watched Stargirl. That, that's like an Easter egg type of thing. Yeah. Uh, but this series, this series is a reinvention uh, set in, well, modern time of when the book came out. It is set in Uganda. And it's about a character named Moses Lowanga. I think it's how you say Lowanga. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and it takes place in the year is 2002 in the book. So it's like between 2002, 2003. So it's heavily, heavily post 9-11. Yeah, um, right at the peak of War on Terror and stuff yeah. like that. So um, I'll do, I'll do a, a quick summary of the premise and uh, what each arc is about. Because uh, we have a lot to unpack. We want to get through them all. So Unknown Soldier, the Vertical series, is about... I had a summary. <laughs> I had a summary <laughs> lined up, but I... I, I mean, know. hold on. Like, I got you right now. Let's see. Northern Uganda, 2002. A country of astonishing beauty in a time of unspeakable brutality. Deep in the bush, far from western eyes. Oh, yeah, we just extreme we just Christian rebel. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And his army of brainwashed children terrorize their own people, engage in guerrilla warfare against uh, government troops. Into this man is step, steps Dr. Lawanga Moses, only seven years old when his family fled the Amin regime for the for the states. Lawanga was an Ivy League education, a beautiful Ugandan wife, and a staunch pacifist philosophy, the embodiment of the American dream. He has returned to help heal the northern Ugandan nightmare. But within the heart of this healer mysteriously erupts an unstoppable killing machine, an unknown soldier. And when he launches his one-man war against the men and children who have turned rural Uganda into a war zone, there's no telling who will get caught in the crossfire. 
All right. So we read the back of the book there. Um, <laughs> so basically, it's a reinvention of the Unknown Soldier in that this is, um, you know, former, you know, African refugee, Moses, Dr. Moses Yuanga, you know, eventually moved to the United States, but then decides to relocate to Uganda to help try to rebuild it and draw global attention to all the various crises, but particularly the one um, that's still ongoing, the conflict with created by Joseph Cody and the Lord's Resistance Army, which we should probably explain that first. Um, so the thing about this book, Unknown Soldier, it's, you know, the, the character, the main character and, and some of the stuff are fictional, but it's based in a very, very real conflict that's happening, um, yeah. which Joshua Dysart goes into huge detail at the end of each trade. He has footnotes and just summaries explain the history of Uganda and the conflict. Um, we're not going to go super deep into that because, you know, me and Phil are not the most qualified. But basically, there's a, I guess you call him a warlord at, the, at this point. <laughs> you know? At this point, yeah. He's yeah, he's like a, to Joseph Kony. Against the, the current Ugandan government. Yeah. Um, trying to install a, a you know, a, theoc- a, theoc- a theocracy based on a very warped version of the Ten Commandments. Um, does Has done, you know, really horrific war crimes. A lot of... Uh, you know, sexual trafficking, kidnapping, uh, child soldiers is probably the big, the infamous big, the thing. biggest one. Right. Yeah, um, still has not been caught. Unfortunately, this conflict is still ongoing. I'll do a little bit of research on it more recently because the book ends in like 2011. So I was checking to see some updates on it. Um, still at large, uh, his his coalition has now kind of changed to. It used to be very driven by a specific political ideology. Opposing the so government like now. Political and like religious ideology. Yeah, but now it's like the, the makeup of his army has changed. So it's now kind of pan-African. And there's like different yes. different groups. So it's just it's just more it's just more like a terrorist cult of personality who's just like kind of a deranged leader. Um it sounds fictional, right? This like it, it, does sound, it sounds extremely this. fictional. Yeah, but he's just and the book does go into detail about some of the crazy beliefs he instills in his child soldiers, like they rub themselves with the oil of some kind of tree, and they think they're that makes them bulletproof. Makes they're bulletproof like because de- they're they're blessed in the oil of of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, yeah, they're deeply fanatical. Um, and yeah, I think the last update apparently is under the Trump administration in 2017, they withdrew the U.S. counter mission against him. So now he has even more free reign. <laughs> and, yes, because the that was started because of the Humanitarian Commission of the United States that started underneath uh, President Obama after watching the documentary, the uh, Coney 2012. Yeah, yeah. But then, uh, you know, Trump reversed that like he did a lot of Obama initiatives. Uh, as I understand, no real sign from the Biden administration that we're going to turn our attention back to that anytime soon. Yeah, I think at th- I think at this point the, the administration is more like Africa must protect Africa from itself or something or along those yeah. lines. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, that's very important. Um, it's not super necessary to know this background uh, before reading Unknown Soldier. It does a good job explaining it, but it does. I think it does inform your reading in a good way. Um, anyways, Moses uh, Yuanda comes back with his wife to try to help uh, the Acholi people. In Northern yes. Uganda, actually, um, yeah, totally. they get caught up in a conflict. They get caught up in an attack by the LRA. Um, and Moses, he is forced to defend. He's, I think he's forced to. He's, he has to go and rescue a girl, right? And he's forced to 
shoot a child soldier in self-defense. And we see something, this is where, the book is normally very, very realistic, right? It's very grounded. So this is where you start to see something a little fishy and that he seems yeah. to have like a, a personality underneath, a personality. Uh, and it's distinguished by uh, narrative boxes, which are colored black and red. Uh, and then he, he, after he kills a soldier and like his personality starts to, he like scars himself. Williams disfigures yes. his own face and he bandages himself, assuming the familiar unknown soldier visage. That's uh, kind of the trademark of the character. Right. And then he, and he, and he, uh, the overarching uh, story of this is that he goes to wage a one man war against the LRA. His goal is to kill Joseph Coney. Yep. That is the overall goal of this book. And uh, thinking about it like this, right? Because we have four, we have four trades out of this, right? It's split up into Haunted House, uh, Easy Kill, uh, Dry Season, and A Beautiful World. And each one of those uh, trades, of course, or encompasses uh, a larger, I mean, uh, encompasses a story that focuses on the overall larger story that the Unknown Soldier is trying to do. And of course, because he has a split personality going on with him. There is a large conflict of interest between the uh, Laguana Moses personality as well as the unknown soldier personality, because as we continue to read, we find out that everything of Moses was a lie, right? Yeah. And he's actually uh, a subject who was, who was a Ugandan uh, refugee coming to America, but then became orphaned and ended up at the, at an orphanage. From the orphanage, uh, got into bouts of rage and ended up going into juvie, left juvie, ended up into the army and was distinguished for his uh, patriotic service. And when people were, when, when the CIA were recruiting for the Unknown Soldier Project, he was one of the first ones to jump in and essentially erased who he was and created a whole new personality. Yeah. Uh, and then kind of, uh, so let's, let's just. It's it's a very bored it's like a very bored identity type of story in this very grounded complex story. Well, what's Which kind of, kind of makes is, sense. Yeah. What also was great is that for most of the story, it's not focused too much on this whole bored identity CIA identity thing that's not revealed to the very end. So it's otherwise grounded in you know a story that's probably closer to like I don't know. Um, I guess like the hurt, the hurt locker, or blood diving, or something like a very grounded, realistic. Oh, uh, uh, what is it called? What, what was that movie on Netflix? The Corey uh, Fuganaga. Uh, Beast, Beast, Beast of No Nation. Beast of No Nation. Yeah, that's probably the closest comparison I would make to like the tone of the book. Right. Um, it's only towards the end that you get kind of like this DC pulpy thing, which is uh, I think handled really well. But let's we'll briefly summarize each story arc. And kind of the important supporting characters, and then we'll do again. We'll revisit the six perspectives approach of this book. Okay. So the first arc, the first seven issues or so, haunted house. You know, obviously introducing the characters to conflict. Yeah, Moses, Doctor Moses Alanga. You got his wife Sarah, who was a very important figure in the book, trying to figure out what's going on with her husband, and then, um, you know, she represents kind of his only link. To like his normal life before he goes full unknown soldier. There is the CIA, washed up CIA agent Jack Howe, yeah. who I really like. Is uh, you know the the only real one of the the probably the most the most prominent white character in the series. Uh, and he's like yeah the jaded 
CIA washout. He's always wearing this like Hawaiian shirt. And he's always drafted by the CIA against his will to just do their dirty work. He's one of those agents that's just like in every dirty op, and he's just like they just don't want to hit because he's stuck in Africa. Yeah, I mean, but like essentially, it also mentions that he went AWOL and they try to bring him back to like wipe his record clean because he apparently he did something in Benin. Yeah, he's not he's not what you call a good CIA agent. Not yeah. not only in terms of morality, but also just his actual his actual <laughs> effectiveness. Um, there's a ch- former child soldier named Paul that Moses rescues kind of uh, during the arc, and he forms kind of a father son relationship. Right, that was uh, during the that was during Easy Kill because he yeah, wasn't introduced kill. in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Haunted House introducing the stuff it ends with you know Moses. Declaring that, yeah, I'm going to go on this one-man war against Joseph Coney. He kind of sheds anything from his previous life, embraces on the soldier. Easy kill. This is the the second volume. This is the longest arc at eight issues, which was intentional. On the, sorry, you said he wanted the second volume to be eight issues. He gets it um, wrapped up with a group that wants to kill this uh, famous white actress, Margaret Wells. It's kind of like, I guess, like an Ashley Judd or uh, uh, Kate Blanchett, you know, Kate. using her fame to, to draw attention to this humanitarian crisis. They want yeah. to, they plot, they want to kill this actress. Because like, hey, you know, America and the West doesn't care if a thousand Africans die. But we kill this one white lady, which famous white lady, will finally get their attention on our on our conflict. Yes. Um, very important in this arc, there's also a second part where the main artist, they, they had to give him a break to just catch up on work. So they went and got a artist from the Congo, or Congo East, of Congo East descent, Pat Masoniff, I think that's how you say his name. I, I honestly don't know. Yeah, because this, this is an artist actually from kind of the general region of the story you set. And he, he takes over for an arc, and it's about kind of focus on Paul and Moses, and they're kind of joining this village, and you see Moses attempt to kind of put his war-torn identity behind him in this kind of a chilly kind of ritual reconciliation of, like, just getting rid of his past. And getting rid of the, yeah, uh, cleansing of the spirit. Yeah. Third, third arc, the dry season, uh, is very noticeable in that the main artist, Alberto Pancelli, comes back, but he changes his art style yes. uh, for this arc, which we'll talk about later. There's a plot about, like, there's some stolen medicine in the village they live in. There's like a witch hunt, like literally. Yeah, literally, yeah. Uh, Dice Hard describes this as the uh, Maltese Falcon story. Yeah, yeah. Which I actually just recently watched. Uh, it kind of is a good comparison. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it ends with, and, there's a, and then it kind of there's a little bit of the Moses Owanga, a non soldier character, you know, teaming up with like another group. A cattle. I don't remember the name of the group. I guess. Oh, they're called the. Uh, I have it written down here. They are the Karamongan. Karamojan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kar- yeah. Kar- yeah. It's like a cattle. They're like less. They're more pastoral of the ethnic group said there. And it ends the. And it ends with him like going back. You know, but he gets he gets kind of willingly recaptured by the CIA. Uh, they they finally attack him down. And then the final arc, Beautiful World, is kind of the wrap-up to this, um, of, of this conflict. You know, he tracks down Joseph Cody, and it has what I, what I think is 
a really great way to do it is that he kills Cody and like everything is resolved, right? He goes back to his wife, every, all the children are saved, and the art gets more like literally flowery. Yeah, it gets very, very, very surreal. Like a rhino shows up, and then like the flowers start to blow away, and then you find out that the unknown soldier was killed. Yeah, he was killed. He never got a chance to reach Coney. It was all kind of uh, yes. dream ending was, almost. Yes, but the funny part about it, though, it was uh, in the beginning of Beautiful World, it is set up from the story uh, Gun in Africa, right, where we get to see uh, Kleshnikov go through, like, what was it, 1941? So, like, the beginning yeah, yeah. of the World War It's an issue fo- focused on the basically following the life, quote-unquote, of an AK-47. Yes. Of its production in like yeah, for like the late forties Soviet Union and how yeah. it made its way to, across the hands. Made its of way forever. to the hands of so because it started off in Cuba. So when the Cubans were sent to uh, Somalia to take care of that conflict from Somalia, it got picked up and was taken over to Uganda to another person who used it for ivory hunting, and then from there it got picked up by a farmer. The farmer had it for the longest, and then uh, he got killed. And then somehow it made it into the hands of a child soldier who used it to kill the unknown soldier. Yeah, but which is yeah, revealed to be tying at the end. Um, yeah. It's my my personal favorite issue. This is the one that's a guest artist by Rick Veach, uh, comics veteran. Um, and yeah, it's my it's my favorite issue of the entire series. I'm just uh, just just following you know this AK-47, this infamous weapon, yeah. and seeing its its role in so many conflicts. All right, so that was half an hour in a summary, uh, <laughs> but there's a lot. That's that's you know, hopefully listeners still with us. There's a lot to summarize with this book, and we you know, we want to do it justice because also it's 25 issues. True. And this might be the longest series we've done, I think actually. Tech. Yes, technically yes, yes it is. Yeah, I mean we've done graphic novels like on a summary that was 500 pages, uh, but this is like the, the series we've done before. That was the Ultimates, which is Ult- only 25 issues. Yeah, Ultimates. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's jump right into our breakdown and our thoughts and criticisms of the book. We're going to take a page from uh, what we did on Doomsday Clock. We're going to do the six perspectives. As a reminder, for those who have forgotten or are listening for the first time, it's a approach for discussion that we learned in grad school from our professor, John Jennings. It's a good way to analyze visual art and how to turn a subjective ex- reaction into a more objective critical one mm-hmm. and they go from personal you know personal technical historical cultural ethical and critical and i'll explain each one as we hit through the different stages uh so let's start on the first stage personal it's what was our personal reaction did you like it yes or no pretty right. simple uh did you like it phil i don't know Yes, I did. Uh, rereading this series again reminded me why I love Vertigo books to begin with, and like why when I was in undergrad, of course, I wanted to work with Vertigo. So the more I think about Vertigo, the more heartbreaking it is to know that it's been dissolved and been replaced with DC Black Label. Um, but I think overall, this this like this book reminded me of like Scout by Jason Aaron. Loveless and 100 Bullets by Brian Azzarello, and like it, it fits so neatly within those types of narratives. Yeah, I'm a, I love this book. I'm a huge fan of the series. I was actually reading it issue by issue in college when it was when it was first coming out. 
Oh wow. Yeah, and then I just stopped reading. I just I just lost track of it eventually. It's it's also not it's not the kind of book that's really good reading monthly to monthly. <laughs> uh, it, there's just a lot of plot and stuff. Um, so the fact that I eventually tracked down all the trades at like a used bookstore or something. Uh, one of the best purchases I made, but it's a great book. And like you said, it's um it's a throwback to like a an era of comics, at least mainstream comics that we just don't really get anymore. Right. The closest we get to now is like image comics, but even we'll then be in they're this, all yeah. even then they're all kind of genre based. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully traditional publishing will get their heads out of their ass and start <laughs> looking at the books like this. Maybe. Uh, Maybe. It's a lot, well, I mean, uh, April is starting to now, so. Hopefully, we'll we'll save that for our publishing episode, <laughs> or my oh, yeah. many gripes about the publishing industry. Um, okay. so the next level, technical, is where you talk about the craft of the work, uh, you know, the writing, the art, the layouts, etc. Um, do you want to start with the art or the writing first? Uh, let's go ahead and start with the writing. So, uh, Joshua Dicehart, uh, wrote the entire series, like. And he he did an extremely good job. He set up the whole character structure. We understand his motivations. And from there, taking that from underneath him to create a whole to introduce a whole new persona and seeing this conflict, not of just like this man versus this war, but also the man within himself. So we have an external conflict as well as an internal conflict, making a lot more interesting uh, in terms of storytelling. What I think Joshua Dicehart is really good at, and this is kind of like the, the mantra of the book, is that this is a very complicated conflict. These are very complicated characters. I think he does a very good job in that no, very few characters are entirely sympathetic or unsympathetic. Right. right? I mean, you're dealing with a conflict that involves child soldiers. You know, like they do horrible things, obviously, but then you see, you, you actually see in the story the things that were done to them. So, you know, it's hard to really blame. There's, there's very few outright villains other than, you know, Joseph Cody, who's the actual villain. Uh, right. But even even our quote-unquote hero, right, uh, Moses Wanga, you know, he admits to himself, like, he's... And other characters actually call him out on it. Characters who do horrible things, like, you're killing children, you know? He's <laughs> <laughs> just like, yeah, you know, but he's willing to do what it takes. What it takes to try and bring, like, an overall piece. So it's like... You know, so this is literally the book of where the ends justify the means. Yep. Um, or at least the the mentality that a lot this character, the main character, and a lot of characters take. Um, and we'll go more to that a little bit in the ethical approach perspective. But yeah, the writing is very very strong. Um, one thing I really like, and it's kind of related to that, is the narration doesn't really get in the way of the art, the action, mm-hmm. which I know is, tends to be a big issue of a lot of very visual action driven comics that people, a lot of people tend to, a lot of writers tend to overwrite, but this is where one of those few times where I felt in there, the internal monologue worked really well, mainly because you have this other personality in Moses, Dr. Moses, right? right. And it just, and it just adds a new voice to otherwise, you know, you're seeing a guy just going around shooting people in the African bush. <laughs> Um, and, and also, like we mentioned earlier, the supporting characters are all really great as well. You know, his wife, Jack Howe, Paul, uh, really fleshed out, very complex. Uh, even, even like, the, like Jack Howe, who's probably the sleaziest character in the entire series. Like, it's hard to, it's hard to really hate him. Cause like, 
you know, he has no real morals. Right. Uh, honestly, I think he's like probably the most relatable character within the the book. Yeah, because what it is is that I think he he's he has no delusions about what he's done, like a lot of the other Americans in the book. Like he right. he knows he's not doing. He knows he's one of those jaded characters that's just every cause is bullshit. You know. But you see a lot of the, a lot of the the characters, um, the Americans, uh, the various African, they they really generally believe in the righteousness of their cause, and that's leads them to justify the ends. He's the one that sees kind of for the bullshit, and just right. like yeah, it's terrible. I'm just gonna get my cut, get my share. Um, he's also I think you go you go into a little bit of the backstory as a CIA agent. You can tell that he's in an impossible task of like all these problems Africa has, and America is really not there to help them it's for its own self-interest it's for self-interest because like i mean just like anything that america has done within the what was that the 50s 60s and 70s right you have all these puppet governments essentially in order to run parallel to the idea of the american government but do those puppet governments ever like stick the course to work with the americans no Right, because we we see this time and time again within South America, within um the Middle East as well as Asia. Yeah. Although it's not to say that it makes a good point uh, that it's not that the African governments are blameless because <laughs> they just go through all these series of like dictators and and rebel groups and they all think they're doing good, trying to they use the rhetoric of helping their people. In reality, they don't. Um. So let's let's switch to the art. Uh, Alberto Pencelli, Italian artist, illustrator. Um, he's done something else that I've read. I don't remember what it was, though. Um, I can't think of it either. I feel like, because the name sounds very familiar, but I want to say he did Loveless, but I feel like I'm wrong. Yeah. That... I mean, I don't know. He did, he did Dial H. Dial H for Hero. There we go. The the new 52 run? Yes. Uh, I like I'm that. sure. I'm sure there's some like Alfred Pincelli fan listening right now is screaming at us, just right. like, oh, you can just did this, this, and that. Um, anyways, you know, feel free to let us know, email us uh, if you want to add us again. Twitter handle is at Andrew Yang for all your yes. points. Um, <laughs> well, how would you describe his art style? Uh, very gritty, rough, um, scratchy. But, like, of course, it all works within this, uh, the narrative that's being told. Uh, the line is very confident, but at the same time, scratchy, like, as if he's using a nib. That's what I feel like the type of, uh, tool he is using, like, looking at the, uh, the folds and the shadows and everything. Um, certain parts of it gets a little distorted in terms of like foreshortening but that helps inform the narrative as well uh it's very kinetic as well so like when we're reading an action scene like that action scene like really gives us the movement like for example when uh howell is like hanging out with these two prostitutes get approached by these two cia agents and hits the corner boom smacks the white cia agent in the mouth right the gun telling that the gun uh, hit him across the face while the blood is flying out of his mouth, showing that movement as well as the impact. Um, choking him, throwing him to the wall, and then hitting him again with the butt of his gun. Like that was just such a great action scene, and we get a lot of those throughout uh, Easy Kill as well. Um, I would say he he 
it's kind of like I guess the second wave of vertical artists. Like they have a lot of artists in sort of the vertical style, like um, R.N. Guerrero on Scalp, right. Eduardo Rizzo on on um, Hundred Bullets. Bullets. Yeah. Um, who was the other like, on DMC? DMZ. Uh, Ricardo Bontecelli. I feel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's like um, these are not they're not clean lines. They're not clean figures. You know, there's a lot of like you said, squishy, scratchy art. Yeah, this is Just like literally the complete opposite of like mainstream like DC Marvel comics. Yeah, yeah. These are like, and you can tell like their art style matches the tone of the books. Are gritty. They're darker. They're more based in realism. Um, it's just like like we you think of this is of this art star is art style and seeing the setting of Uganda war torn Uganda like you think like dirty you think grimy you think you know this is not not a beautiful in the sense of what we're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, although the colors he does he does make it really good in that sense. They're mostly muted, right? He, 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 wait, hold on. He's a colorist. No, he, he's not the colorist. Uh, oh, you're right. uh, what's his name? Is the colorist uh, Oscar Salentini? Yeah, and Jose Villa Rubia, who also worked on uh, Infidel. Yes. So those okay. are the colorists. Yep. Um, and like we mentioned earlier, oh, but so before we, and then he's the main artist in the book. Uh, and then we have the arc and dry season. We switch to. Uh, Pat, I was gonna say Pat. I don't want to. I want to mess no, up his that, last name. No, that was that wasn't dry season. That was uh, was that just, easy, no, kill. easy kill? Easy, easy kill. kill. Yeah, easy yeah, kill. Pat Pat Masonoff is like the Congo the Congolese artist. Oh. Um, his art style very different though, very very different. Um, it's it's would you say it's definitely more French European band designate influence? Yes, completely. Yeah, which I understand what we learned in grad school is that that tends to be a lot of there's a, there's a lot of European art influences, a lot of the comics coming out of, of Africa. Which I can honestly like looking at Bonticelli's uh, uh not Bonticelli uh Ponticelli's art, I can argue and say the same thing as well because he's an Italian artist. Mm-hmm. Um, so he works within like that uh European medium, so he probably works at wider uh what is it called wider formats, larger paper, things like that. Yeah, uh, and you you can definitely tell with the layouts. Um, the lines are a lot thinner. I think the other thing is like the inking is a lot more thicker with uh, Alberto Panicelli's art, but with uh, Pat, I'm just gonna say Pat. All right, first name basis. <laughs> I can't, I'm sorry. Uh, also a lot of gradi- The coloring is gradients, which I which is the thing that's uh, most noticeable stuck out to me. Yeah. Uh, and then. Uh, what's very noticeable, and this is very unusual for an artist to do, is that Alberto Ponticelli, in dry season, he switches up his art. So how would you describe his style there? Uh, so going from Haunted House and Easy Kill to dry season, his art style becomes a lot more, uh, it comes a lot more rugged and dry. Right, because I say dry, the arc is called dry season, which I mean is trying to invoke that type of messaging uh, behind that uh, er- that time during uh, the Ugand- Ugandan season, which uh, I think works, even though like the colors get a little bit lost for me. Yeah, the colors uh, it's more washed. It's it's kind of like an ethereal 
haze almost the way it's colored. Yeah. Uh, everything is like it's still a little ragged. Like it's cleaner. It's not when like super clean. Right. But like the the lines are a lot thinner. Um, it looks almost painterly, I guess. It's like imagine if humidity had a visual look. This would be the look of it. Yeah, that's a good way to that's a good way to describe it. Because like it's called a dry season, and that plays an important part not only because it's really hot during the dry season in Africa, but it's also a time of renewed offensive because the weather is more favorable towards a lot of uh, military maneuvers. Right. Um, it looks a little more like ghostly spiritual. I would say though, as much as I like the switch to his art style to match the tone. I was not. There were parts where it did not really work for me. Uh, well, how how did you feel about the art switch, and did you think this was help or hurt the the book? Uh, the first time I read it, it was a bit jarring because I was like, "Wait, is this not the same guy from the other two books? Like, what what's happening here?" Yeah, yeah um, I, for a minute I thought it was um, who's that guy that DC, that Marvel guy, Mike. Mike Mike Mayhews. I thought it was Mike Mayhews. Oh, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't. I didn't think that. Uh, no, not at all. That is super painterly and hyper realistic. No, I didn't. I didn't think that at all. But um, I I did. It did throw me off. But reading it again and like understanding uh comics at at a higher level than I did when I read it for the first time, I was like, okay, this this makes sense. It makes sense narratively, and you know, showing it off as a visual narrative. You know, it just it just increased the level of the book to a higher state. I think for me, the biggest jarring was this kind of it went from like being really dirty, dirty, grittier looking to like a little more clean. Yes. I think like everything just like looks smoother with the coloring and and the, there's like. I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe. This is where kind of the shortcomings of audio format goes. Uh, we definitely right. need to get we definitely need to get our website up. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely agree. Like I want to get like one of those fancy scanners they use at libraries where like they press a glass on top of the book in order to take a, a proper picture. That yep. I feel like that'd be great. But I don't. The have other that kind of the other my biggest beef about his art style and this arc is that I think his proportions are off in this style somehow that the art in the normal style. So you see like you know the kid with the axe that follows him. Yes. I thought. I did not thought I did not think he was a kid at first. I thought he was I thought he was like a a dwarf. Oh, because <laughs> like it's but it's supposed to be a kid, right? It is a kid, yes. It's yeah, because like his head length. is really big compared to his body, and and a lot of uh, the proportions are really off. I mean, that's 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 a kid in general, but I mean, granted, the... it could be it could be like this is a malnourished kid, and it could be exactly all sorts of deformities, so... maybe. I mean, there's that too, but there's also like this is consistent throughout the book. Like, not everything is proportionally accurate because, like, the witch that they keep talking about and during dry season, right? I am pretty sure she is a grown adult, like within her like mid, like late twenties, early thirties, somewhere around there. And then she has like a love affair thing with Paul, who's like twelve. Yeah. But then sometimes they draw her smaller than what her age is, so it gets it gets very confusing. I mean, part of that I think is that like they're just well, like you know, when you're starved, half starved, and you live in the sun, you know, you're physically less 
age. You, you physically look older or whatever. You don't look normal. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, but but also I think I think he does. I think his I don't think he's one. I don't think he's the best anatomy proportions person. But his normal art style, I think, is able to hide that a little bit more. Whereas when he switched to this like cleaner style, I think it becomes a more apparent. Yeah, I, it's yeah. I, I I can see what you're saying, which is very very weird. But uh, uh, the most notable example, and I was talking to Phil earlier. This is page. Uh, can you see it? Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, so there's like this scene where Moses is encountering the kind of uh, the people behind the stolen medicine, and turns out there's this English broker, and he's holding a gun, a pistol, in his hand, and the pistol is huge. <laughs> it's like it's like like the hand covers his hand covers the handle entirely, uh, and and it's like it's like a there's like a really infamous Batman panel of like him holding two giant pistols, <laughs> but it's not because they're giant pistols, just because the artist was really bad. It might have been Rob Liefeld or something like that. But this really that reminded me of it's like this the proportions of this gun to this guy's hand, the arm in general too. Like it's just it's just really off. Yeah, it's just it's just terrible foreshortening. Yeah. Because like looking at the because like look at the looking at the entire page right you can see like the room from where the the wall the door is from the wall to where the guy's sitting the guy comes out and then all of a sudden there's like extra space between where the uh, English guy is standing next to the table compared to like everything in the back like we should be seeing a wall there yeah and yet you know when I look at his his stuff in the his regular style. Uh, I don't really, these issues aren't as noticeable, um, if at all present, which I don't know. I, I mean, I, I just, I don't, maybe you just crunch for time or something like that. Well, I think um, it's like, a, I think it's a combination of multiple things. I think it's a combination of a switch in the art style as well as the coloring itself. Yeah. So uh, this is where I will, you know, my, my one, this is essentially my one complaint about the series, which I otherwise... I really love, but like, I think this art style switch is just, I appreciate what he was trying to do, but, you know, it's just, there are some legitimate art flaws here. Um, me, me bashing. This, like, guy who only just learned how to draw bashing this veteran <laughs> illustrator who works in comics. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, all right. So, uh, let's go ahead, because we spent a lot of time on the technical, let's go ahead and move on to the historical. Yeah. Uh, we talked a lot, to, we talked a lot about this already. Um, so we're not going to go over it too much, but again, you know, it's a reinvention of a previous property uh, in DC history, Unknown Soldier. Um, you know, it's kind of in kind of the, I guess the, it's the prime of Vertigo before it started to, shortly after this Vertigo, it started to wane down because DC became more corporate, eventually going down on it, uh, going down the ship and Cranberger would later leave. But yeah, I thought it was just um, it's a very cool reinvention, reimagining of this character, particularly because, like we mentioned, he was essentially kind of a very patriotic character, you know, very propaganda. Like, hey, here's, we're just going to do a war comic. He's a he's a war hero. This is a very much more cynical, very dark, darker take on that right. type of thing. Um, which we know, you know, DC is not. We talked about Uncle Sam again, also a vertical comic, you know. That's like what they're what they love to do is just do these re, re deconstructions of these, which is sense. which I find fascinating. So like 
you know, we have Uncle Sam, we have Unknown Soldier, we had Swamp Thing, we have uh, what was the other uh, uh, Hellblazer? Yeah. Like we get we get these mature takes on uh, DC characters, right, through these vertical books, which are which are fantastic. And then, of course, DC dissolves Vertigo. Like, well, they dissolved Vertigo, and then they try to relaunch Vertigo, and then that ended up getting dissolved, and they relaunched uh, with DC Black Label. And with DC Black Label, we get, like, uh, Batman Batman Damned, uh, Superman Earth One, uh, what else? The Aquaman I mean, book. Yeah, it's essentially just, like, alternate continuity takes but on existing dc superhero characters right but with vertigo we get these alternate takes of these dc characters as well as create our own stories so then my i guess my question would be do you think that with dc black label would we be able to see that type of same quality that we were able to get from vertigo probably not i imagine i think the thing is not only is the freedom you get with these characters but also the characters are just so loaded Right, like you can never, you can never do like a Wonder Woman story in in, in something like Unknown Soldier of her fighting, you know, human traffickers. Well, I guess I guess Wonder Woman not eighty four try with the. I mean, the te- technically, thing. with uh, what's it called? Uh, Wonder Woman Earth One by Grant Morrison did something similar to that. You know, I I think it's just I don't think they'll. I think there's an extent in that they will allow your character to be certain dark and gritty. And yeah, you can never like you know if you try to do Batman with this unknown soldier, you go around killing child soldiers. They'll never. Ne- there's no way to hell they ever allow that. No, of course not. But but I mean, it's, 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 it's the same people that lost their mind when we got to see Bat- Batman's Dills and Batman, the first issue of Batman Damned. And yeah. It wasn't even like much of it. And it wasn't even much. It was like just an outline or like a shadow. Yep. There we go. There we go. <laughs> we got. We got this take. We talk about. Or other podcasts, you're gonna talk about gritty, you know, tragic African conflict, and also Batman's dick. Batman's deals, exactly. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, uh, but yeah, I think it's just the thing is that these characters are so iconic. They're just certain things they just never will allow because they don't want the characters to be associated with that. Whereas uh-huh. like some people like Unknown Soldier or Jonah Hex or whatever, they, they're fine because nobody, not always Nobody, nobody cares about them. From a corporate standpoint, but also it's more in line with kind of the flavor of that character, anyway. I see. Um, see, then I feel like we should have gotten like a Suicide Squad, uh, Vertigo book. That would have been amazing. That why you're reading my mind and stealing my pitches. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, well, they kind of already did that with just like a Vertigo Suicide Squad, where they had the rescue hawk who was smuggling arms for <laughs> Reagan in the conscious. I mean, because yeah, that was just uh, oh. Uh, there we go. I would do the '80s version of that. I would just do the gritty '80s version of that. Uh, what was that? Os- Os- uh, Ostrander's run. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyways, um, uh, patent pending, trademark, copyright. No way, same idea. You can't can't do that because again, it's DC. Like yo, DC over fine, here fine. and behind the tree, rubbing their hands, waiting to sue you. Like ooh. Fine, fine. DC, you may take this idea. Just give me some credit. Anyways, historical. <laughs> we've kind of went over it a lot earlier, so. But when we talk about historical perspective, it, we're talking about the work in the history of kind of both its story, but also the context of its genre or what's come before it. Right. Uh, next, let's do our next perspective, uh, cultural, cultural, a, a social. So we're examining the work in the context, the cultural, social context of when it was made. 
but also maybe our perspective on it versus, uh, now. So again, we talked about a little bit. This is that published in 2008, but he started this story in like 2000. He started working on the story in like 2006, 2007. Right. Uh, so this is the height of the Bush era war on terror stuff. Um, a little bit of overlap with Obama coming in, and you know there's some uh, wind down in terms of media attention, winding down the war on terror. Obviously. The conflicts are still happening, just less people cared about it at that point. Because <laughs> uh, right. it started to cool off in terms of people's attention. Um, a lot of a lot of attention at this time drawn to like Darfur and various African conflicts and genocides. Um, I actually knew about the 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 Coney stuff in college, mm-hmm. not not only because of visible children, but also because of uh, a genocide class I took. It was oh, like wow. a, uh, class about genocides and like oh, kind of. I thought it was like you know the makings of like a genocider or something. No, That's no. A- uh, but it's more it's examining just like different genocides that have happened in history and kind of the classification and history of intervention, non-intervention. Um, I learned you know you learn a lot about all these terrible conflicts. Um, how would you say how would you say reading it now? How does it feel? Uh, and you know, post post Obama, post Trump world. <laughs> I mean, well, now, yeah, it it feels a bit dated. While at the same time, I guess because I grew up in that era, like it 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 just it felt familiar. I think it feels dated only because we just don't talk about Africa anymore. <laughs> yeah, sadly, <laughs> these problems have not gone away. No, they but, haven't. No, but like it's 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 one of those things that like. You know, it's just like people slash the media slash Western governments, you know, have can only focus so much time and attention on various crises. And, you know, Africa just hasn't been in the news or kind of on people's minds, I guess, since the Coney Invisible Children thing. <laughs> that kind of ruined a lot of, I think, well towards it. I mean, well, there's that too, yeah. And I guess... uh I don't know, because there's, like, tons of things going on, because, like, um, I feel like the Europeans and, like, America are, like, not moving out of Africa, but they're not, like, doing as much as they did before, and so because those Western powers are moving out, China is now moving in, so now you have, like, tons of Chinese uh, companies going on within, like, their east, the eastern part of Africa, like Kenya, yeah, uh, um, Sudan, Sudan. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Somalia, like things there's a, like there's, that. There's a little bit of reference to that of like Chinese petroleum interests. Yes. Um, I think I imagine you know obviously. I think what also I think was important was like at the time you know there's a lot of public goodwill. It's like we got to help the starving as they do every decade, right? All the way back to um, Band Aid. Is that what it was in the 80s with like Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> and they were like raising raising all these all these musicians raising money for Africa. Oh yeah, you know? like the we are the world. Yeah, wow. that kind of thing. Like every yeah. every decade or so, there's always some like, you know, here are these liberal rich celebrities trying to draw attention to Africa, and it, it, everybody gets in in on it for a little while, and then it goes away. And then it goes away, yeah. Because I like every so often, uh, I don't I don't know if you remember it, but like those uh, commercials about the Ethiopians back when they were having their famine, and then you yeah, had like, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, Sarah, was it Sarah McLaughlin? I always confuse that with Sarah McLaughlin singing about the, the, the pets in the, uh, in the shelters. You know, in, in my mind, to be completely honest, it's the same woman. Yeah, but here's the important thing. It's like, and um, 
they talk about this in the book. It's like there is this perspective about people think Africa is just this conflict, war-torn, starving children, everyone's dying of AIDS, there's more right. lives everywhere. And one of the big points that the writer and the characters in the in the story point out is that Africa is not all like that, but there's always a risk, uh, particularly from Westerners, they portray Africa like that. Yes, there is. Because, like, you know, there's this idea of, like, oh, yeah, Africa is just desert. Africa is war-torn. Africa is this and that, when that's, like, the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, yes, of course, like, you know, there are countries within Central and Eastern Africa that has its strikes. But at the same time, there's, you know, you still have beautiful cities. There's lush jungles, things of that nature. Yeah, you know? I remember we've actually, at WonderCon, the last WonderCon 2019, because <laughs> of the COVID's canceled two of them in a row. Yeah. We actually, we, we remember we met those artists from Africa. Yes, we did. Those, um we should probably do an episode on those books. I guess I, I, I have some of them. So. Uh, I only have one of the books. I have one of them. I forgot where they were from. They, I want to say think Niger- it was not I, Uganda. No, I, I want to say Nigeria. I think they were Nigerian. I think it's Nigeria. Um, I know. I you know apologies. You know if we get all the countries confused, you can feel free to add us. I mean, I'm not getting the countries confused. I'm I'm pretty sure the guys were Nigerian. All right, yeah. Um, but like the, something they talked about, and that's something he, everyone, the artists I was talking to, he said like, that's one of the things they, cause they, one of the big issues they have with their comics is that everyone just does memoirs, <laughs> <laughs> and and he didn't like that because the memoirs are just misrepresenting Africa as like the war torn conflict nation which all the american and european publishers eat up sadly. right but he was so. they were trying to do something cooler more genre based based on the some of their cultural folklore which was this looked really cool it was really cool i read the book it was actually it was very dope um yep. but i mean for those of you who like you know come from outside of the outside of the united states so like vietnam uh uh myanmar parts of africa eastern europe yo you got a you got a sad story you want to tell as a memoir Come over here. They'll eat it right up. Yep, yep. Um, I think one last thing to say on this perspective. Uh, something we should point out. It is important to point out. Uh, Joshua Dysart is white. And the uh, Alberto Pincelli is white. He's, yes. Alberto is Italian. Joshua Dysart is American. But he made, he made it a point uh, that he did it. He was very aware of kind of the baggage of, like, I'm a white guy, you know, telling the story about African conflict and just and he talks about it in the footnotes in the back about like cultural appropriation and whatnot he right. actually before he started the book i think in 2007 2006 2007 he he visited uganda and that's where a lot of the accuracy of the details of of the book come from he, he did a lot of painstaking research uh into not just the conflicts but also the people the culture you know, just getting to know, and which is what I think he's he's very good about in the story. He portrays the people as people. Yes. Yeah, you know, they're yeah. not just they're not just victims or perpetrators of horrible crimes. Right, which uh, really brought me back and reminded me of uh, Jason Aaron's scalp, where like again, Jason Aaron is a white guy who does this like really in depth crime noir story about like Native Americans on a reservation. Yeah. And the and artist is from Spain. <laughs> so he's from also Spain. Not there. Not there. Right. 
And it's and it's an amazing story because like Jason Aaron went and took the time to go to a reservation, you know, speak with elders, speak with leaders, um, like just speak with the community in order to get an understanding on how to write this story. Uh, the thing that makes me sad though is that unfortunately, I think in this day and age, he probably couldn't write a story like this ever again because Twitter would be yeah. like, you can't. We're talking about people who are mad about, you know, Avatar: Last Airbender being made by two white guys. So I think they would be especially mad today, unfortunately. Like, a book like Unknown Soldier could never get made because they would just toss... The people that I think, especially the people that the audience is aiming for, a lot of them would just say, you're not allowed to write this, no matter how well done or respectful it is. Right, which is one of the arguments we've, we talked about in our uh, class in graduate school where we talked about Afar, right? Which mm-hmm. is, like, Afro-futuristic story written by... Uh, it was two white women. Two white women, yeah. Right. Lyle DeLuca and Kate Kit Seaton. Kate Seaton. And it's it's an amazing book. It's an amazing story. Characters are human, right? It just so happens that the the writer and artist are these two white women. Does that take away from the narrative impact of the story? I I don't think so. Right? Yeah, I don't think so either. Especially I think I think the best character argument against that is that like is uh, Tyler Perry. <laughs> yeah. <You know? laughs> Yeah, because like you know, he's a black artist doing. I'm probably gonna get a lot of Tyler Perry fans mad at me, but he's a black filmmaker making films about black people, all black people. It's oh. debatable whether he's really advancing uh, the images of representation and stuff like that. Well, so yeah, because like, well, now that you said that out loud, like, uh, what's it called? Tyler Perry's gonna pull up to the house with the shotgun on some like, hello, like. <laughs> Just just as Medea too, like yeah. the way crooked and everything. It's gonna be wild. Yeah, uh, this is where Tyler Perry's gonna sue us, like you see the Boondocks. <laughs> uh, so, um, keeping it real here, folks. We talk about Joseph Corey, Lord's Resistance Army, and we talk about Medea. Uh, the next perspective we're gonna move on because we're running along, so I'm trying to wrap it up here. Ethical. Um, we talk about ethical, we were talking about what is the ethical stance, the morality, the story is portraying. This right here, I think, is the most fascinating part. Because uh, like we said, it's a complicated book with complicated characters. Um, the, and when, when, he meets, when he finally meets the original Unknown Soldier that recruited into the program, he talks about very specifically ex- uh, and explicitly he had to discard morality in order to win these wars against America's enemies. And then that's essentially what Moses does, that he discards his own morality, his own hesitation to fight these child soldiers. Right, which continue, continually uh, be, gets drawn into conflict again, because in the beginning, we see him start off killing a child soldier, but towards the end of the book, he goes he goes and raids Joseph Coney's camp. He finally makes it and knocks out all the child soldiers there, and he doesn't kill anyone. So I think it's from there, right, we see that blending of the two characters of the Unknown Soldier as well as the the Moses persona becoming one. So trying to do what he was going to do. So he was going to go through that entire camp, not killing all those children because he himself realized that, you know, they are just a product of the environment that they were kidnapped in and brought in. And he, of course, has to, you know, cut the snake at the head, which would be Joseph Coney. I think it's also interesting the the twist at the end. Uh, it's a good statement on what its stance on morality is. 
So we're led to believe up until the very end that like he was a peaceful man who got brainwashed by the government into being this killing machine. And that yes. this conflict with the L- LRA is bringing that personality back up. But then we learned the Unknown Soldier reveals it was the exact opposite. He was actually this war-torn, darker personality, and they brainwashed the pathicist Dr. Moses Luanga on him, and that the yeah. conflict brought his original personality back. Yeah. He says very specifically, you know, soldier, you spent 50 years, you know, trying to make men of war, right, with the unknown soldier program. What if this time we make a man of peace instead? Which I thought was, like, that was very unexpected to, uh, when I first, first time I read that. It's just like, this is a different side to that unknown soldier character, who is otherwise the archetypical Black Ops, a morale, whatever. Right, which uh, when I read it for the first time, I was thoroughly confused. I was like, wait, hold on, what? I said, wait, Man of Peace, the Moses persona, wait, hold on, what's going on? And then, of course, you know, like any good book, you have to read it again and be like, oh, okay, I see what they're trying to go for. It just so happened he happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time, which, you know, of course, kicked off these events, creating the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's the only way you get a book, right? Is those inciting incidents, or you end up with something like blankets? Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh man. Um, I mean, <laughs> arguably, the inciting incident is he met his, he met Raina, the girl. Yeah, that's kind of an inciting incident. No, I would say his inciting <laughs> incident was like going to go and rescue the 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 guy's the kid's sister. That would be the inciting blankets? incident. Blankets. Blankets. Oh, you talking about? Oh, sorry, I thought yeah. you went back to on those. Yeah, I guess in blankets. Blank. Yeah, in blankets. The inside incident was meeting Raina. So that's what that was a hundred, a hundred pages in. Yeah, something like that. Oh, good lord. Yeah, but um, back on the, I think the, I mean, I mean, it only makes sense that it's it's it has its stance on what is ethical and moral, and a story like this is complicated because these conflict in Uganda and in Africa in general are very complicated. Of right, course. they're all they're all they're all products of European colonization, and they messed up a lot of things there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then in turn, then in like all these different sides have done so many terrible things. It's hard to it's if there's no clean good guys or bad guys. Right, because um, then I, like those those people who were in place by those Western powers uh, feel like they've become bigger than the Western powers and are unable to let go of their grip on on uh, the country that they've controlled. Who do you think is the most moral character in the book? Who the who is the most character? like you know, who's a character I guess has the most consistent moral core then? Uh hmm. I would I'll, have to say it would either be between uh Sarah or the photographer guy. What's his name? Oh the guy she she the, the guy she, she remarries. Married. Yeah, that's what's his name? Uh, Mom- Momolu uh, Sing- Singendo. So, yeah, probably. Um, I probably would agree on that. I guess the other one, the other thing I would add is the actress, Margaret Wells. But I think it says something in that the, the three most moral characters are also the most passive and are the most powerless. Uh, yes and no. Well, depending on how you see it, because I wouldn't say Sarah is passive. Because, like, she's, she's trying to do the job, right? Her job is to come to northern Uganda, right? Because she's a Ugandan herself. Mm-hmm. And to provide medical aid and relief 
to these uh, tribes, the Acholi people. I guess I wouldn't say passive. That's the wrong one. I say I guess rea- they're reactive. They're like trying. They're mostly yes. they're reacting and, to these conflicts and trying to yes. patch it. Whereas uh, Moses, even Jack Cole, they're the only ones that are proactive in trying to stop something. To, yeah, right. But you know, in a whole, it's justified to me type of thing. It yeah. reminds me a lot of. Um, Gundam Double, Gundam Double. Oh, uh, with the, the with the the interventions. Yeah, and, and the princess. Uh, what's her name? Reina. I don't or, remember her name, but yeah, whatever. Was, yeah. That that that, that slowly dropped. But it's like she's like a pacifist, right? She doesn't believe in it. She wants yes. to like lead a government, but then it also led. It just led to in the in and like it went in the real world. Like it just. It would, be in, it would get invaded, right? Because yeah, if, if you're a pacifist, you get you get rolled over. No, wait. Say what you're gonna say. Say what you're gonna oh, say. I was gonna say that these are the three most moral characters, but they probably affect the least amount of change right. in terms of the overall conflict. Not that the conflict is solved at all, and and you know, unknown soldier, you know, he he fails at his he fails at his mission anyway. Right, but, we're 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 back at the beginning, which yeah. is the resolution. But I mean, it's funny though, because you mentioned Gundam, and now I'm gonna go on this Gundam tangent because I'm a big Gundam fan. The same thing that happened in Double O is the same thing that happened in Gundam Wing, where you have uh, Relena Peacecraft, who opened her nation as uh, peace, and then the armed forces of Oz automatically go in and try and invade, right, in order to squash her peace because peace is stupid. You gotta be more like Zex Marquise. Well, it's so, and I think there's a nice, there's a, there's a thematic link, right? We can tie into it. It's like, do the ends justify the means, right? Right. Moses, you know, he's going to set aside morality and fight all these child soldiers, do whatever it takes, right? He was willing to go with the plot to assassinate, until the last minute, to assassinate the, the American actress, you know, and he, and remember, he plants that mine to hit, to hit the, uh, her convoy, but it hits an innocent uh, truck of herders instead. So clearly, he at first he's willing to assess the find the means, but he's willing to discard that mentality later on. And like, and you think about like all these these soldiers, these rebels, and these people fighting against the LRA. They some of them have that mentality too, the unjustified the means, but it does, then it just turns them into like when they're fighting. Right. So then the so then okay. So then let's go ahead and leave cultural and social and get to the critical now, right? So that overall right, assessment... Leave, leave, leave ethical. Oh, sorry, yes. Leave ethical and then move over to critical and then, you know, talk about that whole overall yeah. assessment of the book then. Yeah, so critical, yeah. It's just the sixth perspective. It's just summing up all previous perspectives and you just come to an overall assessment judgment. Not, maybe not judgment, but the right word. Uh, overall assessment of the book. What it's trying to say, what it's trying to do. Is it successful? Um, I mean, look at me said it's a book. It's a great book. It's a good book. It's, you know, our, our my beef really. I don't know if my beef is mostly with the art side and the uh, and the uh, switch in dry season. Um, but yeah, it, I think what I like the most about it, and he says it right there. It's a it's a story that's rooted in very real world conflict and strong attention to these issues as educating the reader on these issues. Mm. But there is like kind of a pulpy, you know, bored identity type of story into it. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to say parts of it were fun to read. That's not the right word. But there is um, there is an entertainment that's that's done really well. Yes, the because there's, there's always that like 
hidden under layer of intrigue that's happening throughout the story that you want to go ahead and find out. Like, I mean, of course, especially in dry season, right? Because the, the whole mystery, where did the medical supplies go? What happened to the medical supplies? And then you find out, oh, it was the old woman who did this. And like, wait, who killed the doctor? Yeah, oh, it's a great, there's a mystery thing with the assassination. That's my probably my favorite arc overall with the, uh, Margaret Wells. Yeah. Right. It's just like this, like, again, kind of born supremacy. Anything with the CIA and Jack Cal, I always really like because it adds that extra, like, you know, political espionage thriller. Right. Uh, so it's like a mismatch of different genres and different tropes, which I think keep it from just being this, like, either falling into, like, an exploitation, you know, revenge fantasy of, like, ah, you know, let's let's kill. We're going to solve everything by just gutting down every, every you know, <laughs> African with a gun. But it also keeps it from being this, like, guilt-tripping, you know, masturbatory, uh, you know, another story. Like, about, yeah, like, oh, we didn't do enough. Invisible show, it keeps it from being, like, Cody 2012. Yeah. It's gonna very easily fall into like, a, uh, oh, the story, the story finished before then, actually. No, yeah, it did, it did, like it, because this story finished in 2011, right? Coney 2012, of course, dropped in 2012. Yeah. But I think in between this book, we had two movies. We had, uh, I think it's in between. No, before it, because we had Hotel Rwanda, which came out in 2004, mm-hmm. and uh, Last King of Scotland, which came out in 2006. Which actually is a, it, it forms your reading of the background of, of Uganda. It's good, right? Because uh, it, it, focus on Idi Amin. But um, you know, uh, I think it avoids being kind of like, you know, like I said, like a guilt tripping. Oh, look at these poor people in Africa. We have to raise money by fundraising. You know, Bohemian Rhapsody songs and whatnot. It, yeah, it is actually for, comes for nineteen. 19- for 19 cents a day, your pennies can save the entire African continent. That's that's, <laughs> that's what this is not. Yeah. So it's still like yeah yeah. There's there's a lot of great, good gritty pulpy stuff in it. And yeah, you know, I think it's sad that this type of comic that we probably won't get anytime soon uh, from the mainstream comic side. Probably anyway. not. Oh, yeah, because this is like extremely smartly written well-drawn story that should have been bigger than what it was like i mean to be perfectly honest though i'm glad it ended where it ended because i feel like if it were to continue i don't think it kept up the momentum no yeah i think it's definitely there's only so much mileage you could run with like i mean what's he gonna do kill this real warlord (laughs) you know like, like there's no like i knew there's no way that was gonna end like that uh, unless you go like, and, and then if you did, then you're heading into like a territory. I was gonna say glorious bastards where they end where they kill Hitler. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but that's like more tongue in cheek. Um, yeah, great book. I would say pick it up at your local comic store, but that seems unlikely to find it there. You probably wouldn't be able to, but you can always ask your ask the person to order it for you. So order all four volumes, uh, get them framed, put them on your wall, yep. and uh, not a comicsology, sadly. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, only the first six issues are on Comixology. Which is stupid. Um, so, yeah, you probably will have to go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble. No, Barnes and Noble definitely won't have it. Uh, you Barnes probably will have to go to you Amazon. You've got to go to either Amazon or go to your local comic book store and have them order it for you from there. Yeah, so highly recommend. Unknown Soldier, Vertical Series. You know, great. 
if if you're able to find it, definitely pick it up. It's a it's a nice throwback to an era of comics commentary on you know stuff that we're not gonna get. And if we get it, if we do get it now, who knows? Who knows? I mean, yeah. honestly, I would say this is the type of story me and Phil are trying to do with our comics. Traditional publishing seems to be very reticent on it, but that's that's a that's a talk for another time. So, right. uh, I know any final thoughts? Final thoughts on Unknown Soldier? Uh, good book, pick it up. And uh, and reading this again reminded me, uh, how much I love comics. Like, I mean, every comic I read always reminds me of how much I love comics. But like. Vertigo stories in particular, like, were a very big inspiration for me in, uh, when I was in college. And, like, even more so, like, so solidified my dreams of, like, you know, drawing comics and stuff. So, like, this story, Loveless, 100 Bullets, uh, Scalped, DMZ, uh, just just fantastic, fantastic stuff that uh, I, I hope to continue to see. I think my final thought is, if you were really disappointed... With what happened with Cody 2012 and what happened with there? <laughs> Ask for your money back. Buy Unknown Soldier instead. Uh, I think those are wise words to <coughs> to end on. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I had a very different segue in mind. I uh, said, like, "All right, I'll let Phil do it," and I because I totally forgot about that race that in my mind, which I think was, uh, you know, one terrible thing that came out of it, and one good thing Unknown Soldier that came out of this. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean that's that's what we're here for. We're here for the the timeliness, you know. We're here for a good time, not a long time. Yep, yep. So on that note, let's call it an episode. I'm Eric. Clark. All right, I'm Phil Fleming, and uh, this is not Coney 2012. This is Unknown Soldier. Ah, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think what's an actual 90s show that we could have used. Uh, hang. Oh, and we're hanging with Mr. Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Cooper. Enjoy, everyone.